This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness, together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. Instead of spending all the time that we do spend on deficits and challenge and problems, I think we start with strengths. And the best way to reach and teach kids is to look at them through the lens of strength. Have you ever wondered how to set your students and school up for success? How to create the kind of school climate that encourages everyone to be at their best? In this episode, Dr. Julie Costin and I pull apart the concept of inclusion, what it is and what it isn't, how to apply heart-set principles to get the school year started right, and how to restory your students so that you encourage them to operate from their strengths. To find out more about Dr. Julie Costin, her work, her books, her online courses, and her 21-day gratitude challenge, visit www.inclusiveschooling.com for more information. Dr. Julie Costin is the founder and CEO of Inclusive Schooling. She is a former professor in the Inclusive and Special Education Program in the Department of Teaching and Leadership at Syracuse University. She has spent the past 20 years studying best practices for inclusive education. And as a former elementary, middle, and high school special education teacher herself, she knows firsthand how inclusion leads to better outcomes for students. Julie is the author of many books about inclusive education, and she's published articles in over 30 educational research and practitioner journals. Hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, Dr. Julie Costin, it's wonderful having you on Kindsight 101 today. I'm super excited about our conversation. Thank you, Morgan. It was so lovely to meet you, and I love the connection between our work, so I'm excited to have this conversation too. Me too. So I'd like to jump right into your concept of developing heart set within your school. I first learned about this when you came and spoke in our district, and I just thought it was such a brilliant system, and I loved how you explained it. So it's really rooted in gratitude practice. Would you share some of the tips that you have to foster heart set in a school and maybe even just explain what is the concept of heart set as you as you sort of explore? Yeah, so I think about schools as places where human beings need to grow and develop. And we as educators come to our practice with, you know, a mindset around things, like a way of thinking, a way of practicing, etc. But when I'm thinking about all learners, I really think there's a piece missing and it's the heart set by which you approach our work. And so the heart set is really the values, the beliefs, the feelings you bring, the intentions you set to do the work of educating children. Um, and so I'm kind of using heart set in, I guess, uh, in juxtaposition with the word mindset. So kind of next to mindset, people understand what a mindset is. And instead I'm saying, this is a way of coming to the work with an open heart and mind. Um, and you said it's, it is rooted in gratitude. The work that I, just to give you a little background, I often am working with students who have very challenging behaviors in schools. Um, and all the work that I do is really, really centered on inclusive education. So how do we make sure that kids, all kids stay together and are educated together, even those that have um, behavior that challenges us. And so um, I've kind of have five tips to really help create a heart set culture in a school setting. Do you just want me to go through them? Sure. That'd be great. Okay. 
Um, so the first one is really starting with strengths. Um, unfortunately, in school settings, we often look at students through a lens of disability or deficit or challenge. And I don't mean that to say that educators naturally come in that naturally come to this, but instead it's really the system of education itself where we're expected to determine, you know, what category of disability does the student have, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I like to flip that on its head completely. And I think instead of spending all the time that we do spend on deficits and challenge and problems, I think we start with strengths and the best way to reach and teach kids is to look at them through the lens of strength. When I'm working with educators, I often ask the question, you know, raise your hand if you have a deficit area. And it's sort of funny because everyone in the audience usually laughs and hands go up, you know, every single hand almost goes up. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like, of course, we all, all of us as human beings have deficit areas. But in school systems, we become hyper-focused on, you know, how many standard deviations below the norm are they on this particular subset, right? Right. And, um... Anyway, so my first thing is start with strengths. And what I mean by that is constantly, constantly be looking at, be finding, be searching for, be writing about, be talking about students' strengths, gifts, and talents, because those are the keys to really reach and teach students. I love that. Yeah. Um, thank you. So that's the first thing that I really start with. And it's the, kind of the way we look at human beings. Um, and then you mentioned gratitude and, uh, man, I'm 46 years old and every day I realize just how powerful gratitude is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like in school systems, we haven't had the time slash energy slash ability to spend on ideas around gratitude. Oh, sorry. If you hear banging, I wanted to tell you that there's construction happening. At my house, so <laughs> it's all good. And I- and you know what? I'm thankful for that construction. So that's a good, that's a good example. There's many ways to look at it, but I'm very grateful that we can be that we can be building onto the house. Um, so in terms of gratitude, I can tell you just all sorts of simple practices. But one of them that I'll just share is um, I do a 21 day gratitude challenge, and it's simply educators. I ask them to think of a student that challenges them the most. Uh, the student that they are up at night worrying about, thinking about. And I asked them to write a note of gratitude to that student and give it to that student for 21 days in a row Mm. and watch what happens with that relationship. Mm. Um, The stories of teachers that have taken this on, they're the kinds of stories that bring tears to my eyes because, because it can revolutionize. It can absolutely change everything when you as an educator are looking for all those tiny moments to be grateful for that particular student. And I and I also think there's that piece. I just I love that because I think there's the part that also models for the student a new way of looking at themselves too, which I think sometimes our words can become their inner talk as well, like their self-talk. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's why I say you must write it. So a lot of educators are very, very good at um, telling students that, you know, they're right on track or they're proud of them or all those kinds of things. But in writing, you want to actually have a student be able to hold those words and see them again and again and again, because essentially what you're doing is helping them to rewrite their own story. Um, 
I know when we were together before, Morgan, we talked about um, restoring children, which is the concept of rewriting their history in terms of rethinking what it might be to talk about the students based on strengths, gifts, and talents. Yes. And so the gratitude is an, a kind of small example of that where you say to a student who held a door something like, um, I noticed how generous you were at lunch when you held that door or, you know, those kind of things. Yes. And then they can re- they can revisit that when it's quiet or when they're having a hard day. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. So the, the gratitude, I'll just, one last thought I'll share related to that piece is a teacher contacted me recently who had tried the 21 day gratitude challenge. And, um, she was really brilliant. She said that I told the student that every day they had to take that note. They had to put it in their pocket and they had to share it right away with their grandmother when they got home. Uh, and yeah. what I loved about that is she was not only kind of restoring the student or, or re, you know, restoring some trust and faith, but instead also she was recreating a new relationship with that grandmother who had some pretty difficult conversations with school over time. And so for 21 days to get a note about kind of how outstanding um, her granddaughter was, was really powerful in shaping their relationship. That's so amazing. And I can see that being a really powerful way of connecting to the families too. Like I think that's such a big part of the trust that we can build with with parents and with with families in terms of how they they feel like they're part of that inclusive community as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you want me to share a third tip? Or? Yes, I'd love, to, I'd love to hear them all. And I think the listeners would too. Okay, great. So the third one is it's simple, but ask yourself what you need, right? Mm-hmm. So here's what I mean by that. Um, I don't know why, but in school settings, we um, often do things that wouldn't make sense to us. So uh, an example might be when I'm called to work with a student with challenging behavior, I'll often get there and they will tell me um, that they have created a sticker chart, right? Right. And they'll tell me that they've got this, this intense sticker chart that every 15 minutes the student's getting, you know, a sticker for this or that or the other thing. Yes. And then I just sort of, yeah, I know. And so I just like to ask people to stop for a minute and think about when they're upset, when they're angry, when they're out of control, when they're having a hard time, what do they need and write a list, right? So I love to do this in a huge room of educators um, where where they write a list of the things that they need when they're out of control, when they're upset, when they're um, anxious, et cetera. And that list that they generate, that educators themselves generate is usually the very best list uh, that they can use to support students who have challenging behavior. So they might say something like, oh, all I need is a friend to listen to me. All I need is an ear. I need someone to just kind of hear me out. I need space and quiet. I need a nap. I need a glass of water. I need to go for a walk. I need a change of pace. I need, you know, and the kinds of things that people say are the exact same things that children need. We just have to give them the space and the ability to ask for those things. Um, And so often I have kids create a menu of needs so that let's just say a student's having a hard time, they don't have to come up with it off the top of their head. They can point to their menu and say, I just need a break or I need to find a friend and have a seat and chat with them or, right? And so we've got 
um, ahead of time, we really think about what the potential needs are for the student. But I like them to be based on human needs instead of anything punitive or anything, um, you know, that we unfortunately too often do in schools. Wow, wow, wow. And I, I love the idea of the menu of needs. I think that's so brilliant because it's about forward thinking and it's allowing the students to really reflect in, in a time when they're probably calm and they feel maybe filled up and they can really reflect on what they need. But I also think this is such a big concept. I think quite often, and, and this is probably something we can delve into a little later even, but I think quite often we're so stuck in that behaviorist model of punishment and reward and it's it's obviously not very effective or it may be effective in the short term, but when it comes to truly with some of these really challenging behaviors, I mean, you have to go beyond that. Like it ha- the, the student has to feel safe enough to to sort of let their guard down and feel vulnerable and be able to take some risks and make some changes. And it's not easy, right? So I just think that whole menu of need, needs really speaks to that. Right. If there's one thing I could do, I, it would be in schools, it would be really to rethink the sort of behavioristic way of looking at students. Um, we know rewards and punishments don't work long term at all. And so instead, it would be, I wish there was a way to fast track, you know, supporting behavior, but it is really all about connection, 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 mm. and getting students to a point where they can and are willing to be vulnerable with with you. Mm-hmm. And on their timeline, I think too often we have this ingrained sense of how fast a child should be going and the forward momentum and that it always needs to be up, up, up. And I think when we reflect on our own learning and our own ups and downs as human beings, the reality is it's a zigzag. It's not up, up, up all the time. And I think it's not always reasonable to expect. I mean, recently I heard the word plateau with a child who I go, you know what? You know what? There's a lot of things going on for this child right now, you know? So it's kind of this totally different perspective of what growth and safety, I guess, means within the context of connection, right? Right. That's really interesting. And think of all of us, like think of, I'll just use my own like trajectory with weight loss, for example, right? Like <laughs> it's, you know, it's not, it's, it's never a straight line and it's always two steps forward, three steps back. And it's interesting that we have such rigorous standards for children mm-hmm. when it comes to growth, you know? Yes. It's interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I want to hear number four. Okay. So, um, this one, uh, is really, I, I have to use an analogy of a roller coaster. So think about if you've ever been on a roller coaster and you sit down and um, you strap into the roller coaster, right? And they might pull the bar down over you. And at that moment, let me just ask you, Morgan, what do you do when they pull that bar down over you? What's your first instinct? I... I look around and I go, okay, I need to make sure I'm safe here. Like, how do I, how do I know that this is going to, this is going to keep me in? Okay. So you worry already about the bar itself. And do you think you might give it a shake or double check it? Absolutely. Okay, right. Yeah. So when I do this in a room with lots of people, they make this motion that looks like they're checking their bar, you know, they're pushing on it. And, um, I find this really interesting because I'll ask them, well, maybe I'll ask you, why do you check the bar like that? What are you double checking? I want to make sure it's going to hold me in. Yeah. And so you're just double checking to make sure it's going to hold you in. And then I tell educators this. We are looking at students whose lives have been roller coasters. 
We are looking at students who have watched, witnessed family members go flying off roller coasters. We are expecting that when they sit down in that roller coaster, that they are going to check that bar and check the bar and double check the bar and make sure that bar can hold. So the analogy that I use for the roller coaster is this. When those same children whose lives have been roller coasters come into our classrooms, they're going to check with us again and again and again and again to make sure that we can hold for them Mm. and that they're safe with us. And the way they check the bar or they double check is they test our boundaries and they test and they test and they test and they test because they want to make sure to triple check to double check that we're going to hold for them. And so one of the biggest challenges that I find is helping educators feel full enough themselves to feel like they can hold for our very challenging students and to feel like they can hold for students who are going to test the bar 15 times a day. Mm. And so this whole concept of holding is really a piece that we've got to figure out how to do for our students. And it kind of, it turns into, we have to be strong enough to hold for our students, which means we have to practice self-care in really systematic, significant ways. Because when we can't hold for ourselves, we can't hold for children. And so that's a piece that I really do a lot of work on with with educators is making sure that they can hold. Wow. That gave me chills because I think I think it's powerful. It's such a powerful analogy. I think it's so easy to take the testing personally or to right away think that there's something wrong with your practice. And when we look at it more as this is a test to make sure based on a child's past history or experiences to make sure that as an adult, I'll hold space for them. I'll still love and respect them as a person. It's pretty powerful. It's a, it's a shift, right? It's a shift from wanting to change that testing behavior to sort of accepting and, and being patient with it, right? And maybe seeing it for what it is and right. And just seeing that this is a very scared human being that doesn't trust me yet. And I think it's different to hold in September. Like all of us are ready to hold at the beginning of the school year. Right. Yeah. But when it's, you know, but when it's uh, like this morning, it was a rainy day or a rainy Monday in May here, you know, and it's like to still hold mm-hmm. <laughs> and to be able to, you know, continue to hold. And what I mean is to show up every day with open, loving arms, ready to start anew. Uh, but doesn't matter what happened the day before, but I'm ready to support you and to hear you and to see you and to hold for you. And, um, you know, that's not, that's not easy. That, that work, the work of educators is sometimes, um, it's, it's the largest, it's the biggest thing we can do in the world is to hold for children. Mm. What are, I mean, you mentioned self-care and this was something I wanted to talk with you about, because I think it's as, I think as, as educators become more weighed down by the expectations on them, I think in the, in the States, especially all the testing, you know, I mean, even in California, they just recently passed some kind of a bylaw allowing teachers to have handguns. Like, I mean, in some places it's pretty crazy. And so what does self-care or a self-care practice truly look like, um, in terms of like some of the examples that you might've seen that work? 
Yeah, so it really is pretty individual. So for some people, knitting is their self-care, and for some people, hiking is their self-care. And so what I like for people to think about when they're it's kind of like the menu um, of what you need that I was talking about before. I really, really encourage educators to think about their own menus of self-care and ask themselves the very hard question of what fills me. Uh, Because when we're in those spaces and places where we're very depleted, it's hard to even think about what fills you any longer. Right. Yes. And so instead, it, you know, during the summer, I recommend people take time and energy to, ju- to write down an entire list, like a long list. Um, I have a list at the beginning of my journal um, and I rip it out and it goes in every. So if I finish a journal, that page moves over and it's kind of it's my self-care list. And it goes from it's very long. And it's basically when you're sort of in an emergency, like when things are really bad, do these things and then repeat. And so it might be who do I call? you know, take a nap, get some water, what is it that works for you? But if you don't do that sort of reflection, you don't ever uh, have that list. And then you can really find yourself in a place where you're feeling pretty lost. Um, And then the other thing is find your tribe. Um, Education can feel lonely at times, especially philosophically, if you're out of sync with many of your colleagues. Um, Yes. I know personally, I was a, I've always been an, a huge supporter of inclusive education and I've often been surrounded by educators who didn't feel the same way. Right. And so sometimes I've kind of felt like a social pariah, like, you know, <laughs> because I, I would, uh, well, like it, for example, sometimes I'd walk in the, the lunchroom and people would be talking about a family or a child or something. And I'd say, yeah, I don't do that. Right. Which doesn't make friends. It doesn't make friends with those people. Um, But it really feels right ethically for me not to say those kinds of disparaging comments. And so anyway, my point not to I I don't mean to sound holier than now, but my point is this. I don't didn't have a lot of friends as an educator, Um, but I had to find my tribe. And so I um, ended up creating a group about inclusive education and it was district wide. And I started to find friends that really kind of were right in tune with the work that I was doing. And that's what I needed to do uh, because a tribe wasn't readily available to me. I had to find my tribe. Yes. And I think, I think with the advent of the globalization of, you know, social media and what, what it allows for PLNs to do like on Twitter or on various social media platforms, it really enables us to find each other. It's, it's been really remarkable. Like I, I, I found that in a number of different circumstances where I've made deep lasting connections with people online and it seems totally counterintuitive. I never believed that you could do that, but it's been, it's been real and you know, you're kind of there for each other and you're working on projects together and you know, you, you do zoom calls together, Skype calls and it, it, it's pretty amazing. It it's really does happen. Right. So that's the exact kind of thing that fills me, for example. So like on my list, I have book clubs. So like for me, if I read a new book that I love, I'll throw it out there to have a book club and I'll just have a Zoom call or Skype call with anyone who wants to read it with me. And that's that's the sort of nerdy thing that fills me. But that's not the thing that would fill other people. Right. So so those are the kinds of things that you want to just kind of look internally. But absolutely. Finding your tribe, however that looks, is necessary. I love that. Can you touch on number five? Sure. Um, the fifth one is, uh, so I started with strengths and I'm ending on strengths. So what I mean is I have start with strengths and end with strengths because I 
really think we need to, in education, rethink a lot about the ways that we look at disability um, and other quote unquote challenges that students bring to the classroom. And um, I instead like to look at Gardner's multiple intelligences. Uh, I know that's a little bit old school, but I'm bringing it back because I love it so much. I really think that we have to look at all the ways that students bring beauty into the classroom. And so, for example, instead of looking at a student who you know might be quote unquote labeled ADHD, we might look at that student as having a lot of bodily kinesthetic intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we design instruction around movement, making sure that there's a lot of movement built right into our lesson, right? So for example, instead of having the student working on a worksheet, they can work, I use um, a working ways menu, so they can work at any physical position they choose as long as they're working. And so students can work graffiti style, which is just simply taking a piece of tape and putting their paper on the on the wall, they can work at music stands, they can uh, lay on the floor, etc. But what you're doing is you're not seeing a student through the lens of deficit saying like, that kid can't sit still. Instead, they're saying, we're saying that student has a lot of bodily kinesthetic strength and ability, and we want to make sure to foster that and allow for that. In schools, we get very stuck on what smart looks like, and I like to blow that up and say smart looks like a million things, and we can design instruction to meet the needs of a million kids. I think that's powerful. I, I want to come back to this concept of restoring kids because I think it really fits into this concept of sticking with strengths. You talked yeah. about, and, and I love your Winnie the Pooh reference, and I'd love it if you could maybe touch on that. Um, you talked about getting away from pathologizing kids and stepping into those strengths to change the narrative that we have around what they can achieve and who they can be. What does that mean for you? And how does that shift the way that we can serve our students effectively? I like to look at what we write about children, right? So I spend a lot of time as a researcher examining and looking at, you know, IEPs and documents that we've written that describe our students. And for me, it's really interesting because um, personally, you could have a very long document of all my deficits, all my challenges, all my bad decisions, all, you know, all these kind of things. I could have that kind of a document or I could have a document of all my strengths, gifts, talents and abilities and they would look very, very different. And unfortunately, I think we need to rethink completely the ways we write about children. So you mentioned the Winnie the Pooh connection. So how I often do that is um, really ask people to think about Winnie the Pooh characters. I'll, I'll do each of them. So Winnie the Pooh could be described in many ways, right? He could be described as happy, a pleasure seeker. He's always looking for honey. He's relaxed. But he could also be described as gluttonous or dull. Yes. Uh, Eeyore could be loyal, lovable, an obstacle finder, right? I like obstacle finder. (laughs) I do too. Because we've all worked with obstacle finders, right? Yes. Or he could be considered a pessimist or an energy drain. Mm. If we look at Piglet, could be sensitive, empathetic, and kind, you know, or could be nervous and neurotic. Mm-hmm. Let's look at Tigger. He could be considered energetic, quick, or fun. He also could be considered hyper, overactive, and loud. Yes. Uh, Owl, wise, gives advice. He's a philosopher, right? Yes. Or we could see him as self-centered or egotistical. <laughs> and then we've got Rabbit, is organized, detail, rule follower, or bossy and inflexible. Yes. And those are very different ways to look at those characters. And I think probably all of those things are true. However, the more we see 
the beauty in our students. And the more we write about the beauty in our students, the more what I call it is we restory them. We rewrite about them. And eventually when we rewrite new narratives about who they are and when we see them through those ways, they start to believe that about themselves and they start to become um, more and more able to see those parts of themselves. Um, and so that's kind of the work that I think about when it comes to restoring. Also, if you're hearing someone snoring, and that's just my dog who's snoring, just so they clear. <laughs> in case you thought I fell asleep in the middle of the interview, I didn't. Um, I also, there's, so A.A. A. Milne related to, you know, A.A. A. Milne wrote Winnie the Pooh. Yes. And my favorite opening scene of the book is, here is Edward Bear coming downstairs now, bump, bump, bump on the back of his head behind Christopher Robin. It is, as far as he knows, the only way of coming downstairs. But sometimes he feels that there really is another way. If only he could stop bumping for a moment and think of it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and I just think about schooling. I think about the ways that we think about students. We have to stop bumping because, as you well know, it is grueling. The schedule, the day-to-day, every minute, every day, educators are working so hard. But we have to stop and think of brand new ways to really view all students. I want to sort of, I really want to dig into this idea of inclusion because within the concept of sort of restoring kids and looking at them through a strengths-based approach, which I really believe in, there's sort of this kickback about, well, we have to be realistic and we, you know, there's these parameters by which we need to measure kids and and all of that. So when it comes to inclusion, what does it really mean to you and what isn't it? And how do you sort of, how do you, how do you explain it to people who seem to be resistant to the idea of what inclusion means? Like sort of this free pass for everybody. Hmm. Okay. When people are resistant, I've gotten less and less nice about resistance mm. because I've been doing this work for a long time. Um, when people are resistant, I talk about um, in 1954, we decided that um, it was not, there was something called Brown versus Board of Education. And what it said is that we needed to educate students that were white and students of color in the same location. And that separation of students um, by race was likely to affect the hearts and minds of children in ways that were unlikely to ever be undone. And I take that same piece and I say it is the exact same thing with disability. Nobody today would be talking to me about maintaining segregated schools based on race, but people feel very comfortable saying it's okay to segregate human beings based on disability. And so when I place that there, I'm not going to say that it really opens hearts and minds, but it's a starting point to say we really have come too far in all other ways to not look at disability as a similar type of marginalizing, what I call marginalizing condition, which means society thinks it's okay to sort and separate human beings by disability. Mm. So that's kind of why, where I go with the resistance piece. But you asked a much more sort of easy question, which is what is inclusion to me? Um, And inclusion to me is valuing the human diversity within our society 
and no longer segregating or separating human beings based on ability, based on race, based on gender, based on socioeconomic status, based on um, sexuality, based on, based on, based on, based on, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It is essentially thinking about every human being has the right to be educated together with their peers of their same age. And our job as educators is not to sort and separate, is not to spend our time and energy testing and figuring out just how this is going to work and not work. Instead, it's to say we've got a really wildly diverse classroom. We've got really, really big goals for students. And now we have to figure out how to differentiate so that every student can reach their maximum potential. Aside from the the heart set principles and your 21-day gratitude (laughs) challenge that you do, which is amazing, by the way. What would you say to an educator or an educational leader in terms of what are a couple of touch points that one could keep in mind as one sets out to create a real, authentic sense of inclusion in the classroom or in a school? Well, I do work with administrators very often. And for administrators, uh, if they're changing their entire school system, I start out by saying that the resistance is real and will be very, very challenging. So I kind of don't sugarcoat the fact that there will be people within a school system that think that it's really okay or best practice to separate students with disabilities. Um, And so I kind of help bolster them to really look to see that it's not going to be easy. And I would say the same maybe for educators. Um, I guess the question is totally different if if I'm talking to educators or administrators. So I'll give you kind of a couple of points for for administrators, maybe and for educators. It would be sort of um, it's not for the faint of heart (laughs) (laughs) to really change a school system is not is not something that you can do casually or easily. But I would say that the way in for all people is through um, many different avenues. So sometimes I really approach it through the law, right? That there's a law that students should be educated together. So that might be where you start. Sometimes it's through personal experience. Sometimes it's through story. Sometimes um, it's through data. So this is probably the most fascinating part of my last 20 years is, is, um, really learning that when you put kids with and without disabilities together in inclusive settings, they do better academically, socially, and behaviorally. And it's measurable, right? All kids do, like all all of the kids. All of the children. So whether they have a label or don't, whether they're considered talented and gifted or not, whether, right, it doesn't really matter. What we find is that when educators include all kids together and learn how to meet the needs of all children together through differentiation, um, we actually see scores go up pretty dramatically for all subcategories of kids. Hmm. And so um, sometimes it's that data that changes the hearts and minds of people. Um, So it kind of doesn't, I'm not sure what way people want to approach it, but I guess my point is that you can have many different ways to approach it and you might want to approach it through all of the ways because actually going back to the Winnie the Pooh, like your rabbits really want data. Yes. Right. You know, your Winnie the Poohs really want that story that says, yeah, you know, this is better for that kid. Right. The Eeyore really wants to see what are all the potential obstacles and how do we overcome them? So literally, I guess my point is that you have to differentiate your approach to inclusion for all your educators. Right. 
Here's my last one before we go to to the rapid fire. This might sure. be a contentious one. I would mm-hmm. imagine that that when you meet large groups of educators, that there is sort of this undercurrent of underfunding and burnout. I think there's a desire with a lot of a lot of teachers to make this happen, and there's also this understanding that there is more being piled on. So how does one person meet the needs of all of these kids effectively? Like what part does funding and scaffolding for teachers play in all of this? I guess it's a little bit interesting to know that inclusive education doesn't cost more. It's actually cost neutral. But what it means is that we stop putting children in one room with a bunch of resources and we spread children out to multiple rooms, general education classrooms, and the resources go also. Right. So I'm not going to pretend that um, that schools are well-funded, and I'm not going to pretend that uh, every, every school system is set up to do this incredibly well. But I will tell you that whenever we change a school system from being um, not inclusive to inclusive, we utilize the exact same staff that they have. But what's funny is... Um, I do these maps of schools. And so I look to see where are all the adults and you'll see a room with maybe five adults and maybe 12 children with autism, right? All in one room. Right. And what I'm suggesting is that we spread out those children, obviously right back to their general education classrooms, but then the resources follow kids. And so now, and then now not only do those kids benefit from the extra support, all kids can benefit from extra support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's really cost neutral, I guess, is my point. And I wish schools were funded better for sure. But yes. um, a lot of people use it as a, an excuse why they don't want to move towards more inclusive practices. And we find it to cost the same. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense, too, is just that it it can be sort of leveraged as a reason not to get on board, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So what does kindness mean to you? Kindness means finding the beauty in every single person. And when you find it, kindness follows. What trait or superpower should an educator lead with in order to be effective? Uh, They have to lead with love with every single student. And finally, if you were to print one quote or message onto one of those quote cups sold in big bookstores, what would it be? I love so many quotes. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I guess right now, or what fits this podcast the best, is a Henry Van Dyke quote. Um, And it says, use what talents you possess. The woods would be very silent if no birds sang there except those that sang the best. Mm, That's beautiful. Some some of our students will sing beautifully, and so will all of our students if we listen hard enough. That's really powerful. It's a good way to end off. Julie Costin, thank you so much for joining me today on Kindsight. This was an absolute joy. My pleasure. Thank you so much. So, Julie, where can we find the work that you do? Um, I guess the best place would be if you just search www.inclusiveschooling.com. You can find me there and that's my website and there you can find out how to have me come work with your school. Um, I've got online courses that are there. Um, Probably the one that's most relevant to your listeners would be um, the 21 day challenge. And it's really kind of how to bolster um, 
bolster educators to do the work of inclusive education. I think it's um, really useful. And then I've got events and many more things. I've got books there. So if you just go to inclusiveschooling.com, you can find me there. Awesome. That's wonderful. And you also have uh, presence online as well on social media. Yeah, so I've got um, a Facebook group, and I'm I'm learning to use Twitter. So if anybody out there wants to give me some more Twitter support, that'd be great. But um, yeah, Facebook is great. So it's inclusive schooling is where you can find me then Facebook too. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21-day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.